Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. This is Adam White, a law professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School, and I'm joined as always by my friend and Hoover Institution senior fellow, Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? Well, I'm pretty good, thank you. Well, we're taping this on January 28th, which means we're now well into the Senate impeachment trial, more specifically, the defense being uh, asserted by President Trump's lawyers, his White House counsel, uh, and outside lawyers. Richard, what's your take on the impeachment so far? Well, I think up until the revelation with respect to Bolton, it was pretty much as everybody kind of expected. Uh, This is a trench warfare. We're in northern France. It's 1917. And uh, you gain only very small amounts of territories with an enormous amount of exertion. So since there was nothing that was unpredictable, um, I think, in effect, that basically the uh, prediction that the president would win, he would carry all the Republicans except maybe one or two, that the Democrats would be a complete phalanx would not break. I think that was there. I make it a point not to listen to this kind of testimony, actually, so I only read about it after the fact. Uh, But my sense is that in the tug of war there, at least until the Bolton stuff, I I think that the president's lawyers did a pretty good job. I think that the plaintiff side overclaimed um, when somebody said that this is an impeachment of Donald Trump because he's acted like a king. um, That kind of hyperbole may play well to the gallery. But I think that um, Nadler is not remembering what kind of audience he's trying to win over. He's trying to win over the Republicans. And I think the way in which he does that best is to make relatively modest but powerful claims about what it is that he did wrong in particular cases, rather than making a condemnation of his entire uh, time in office. Because the moment you make it that broad, uh, what happens is it, it then starts to look much more like a political attack and much less like a kind of a reason uh, sort of situation. So I think that they miscalculated there. On the other side, I mean, uh, I, I think the, the only high-powered moment was the Dershowitz testimony, impassioned as he was. And if I ever hear Alan say once more that he voted for Clinton, but he's against all impeachments, uh, I, I think it's overdosed with respect to that. Uh, but there was no question, I think, on the day um, his remarks did have some kind of a powerful effect with respect to galvanizing the Republican. And so if you would ask me after Saturday, I would have said that this was a pat act, a done deal, and by Tuesday we'd be out of it. Uh, once it turns out that we get the Bolton thing into there, uh, we have to talk about this later. Um, it looks as though this is going to be a more serpentine kind of provision. I don't think the ultimate outcome will change with respect to acquittal against the charges, but I think the path to a final conclusion is going to be longer. I think that holds some peril for the president, but I also think that it holds a lot of peril for some of the Democrats as well, if they're seen as piling on. And it, of course, it takes all of the senators who are running for the presidency out of commission for at least some period of time, and so therefore will also roil up places like Iowa, where it turns out that the non-senators will have a built-in advantage of those people who are sitting in office. Now, we'll get back to uh, Dershowitz and Bolton and the witness questions in just a moment. But I'll, for my own thoughts on, on impeachment so far, I'll say I agree the the Dershowitz uh, testimony was, was definitely the galvanizing moment for President Trump's lawyers. Uh, on the House manager side, on the Democrat side, so often last week we found them uh, falling into a, a, mis- a misstep, I think, that they committed repeatedly during the House proceedings, which is... Be- taking a proceeding that's nominally focused on President Trump's actions with with respect to Ukraine and just 
irresistibly trending back towards broader themes that really weren't supposed to be part of this impeachment, specifically uh, the Russia situation. Even with respect to Ukraine, and, we, and also we saw this in the, in the House proceedings, there's this vagueness about whether the Democrats are challenging uh, the president's abuse of power, or if they're cha- if they're just challenging that, or if they're also trying to make this a criticism of the substance of his Ukraine policy. And I think over and over again, when House managers uh, ranged into those topics, and and Nadler is a good example of this, I think they really were watering down the 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 power of their central criticism, which goes to this Ukraine episode, which is one that you and I have on this podcast uh, spent no shortage of time sort of going back and forth on. I will say on the House manager side, I do think the most powerful moment was Schiff's, I can't remember if it's his closing testimony, but it was it was his wrap-up on, on why he thinks removal is justified. And he made an impassioned appeal to, the, especially the Senate Republicans, saying uh, uh, that you know what's right, you know what's wrong, and you also know Donald Trump. And so you know that for whatever hypothetical justifications might be conjured up for by his lawyers in support of what he did, you know, claiming that he just really cared a lot about corruption and it just happened that this involved the Bidens. Um, I, I think Schiff, and I, I'll say as a side, as somebody who's found Schiff uh, uniquely uh, irritating uh, and really uniquely, um, you can add as many adjectives as you like, over the last few years, um, anytime you say Adam Schiff did a good job, uh, you need to pause and re-examine your life choices. But I will say <laughs> that, I'll, I'll say, I thought he actually had a, did a very powerful job in that statement. Of course, by the end of this week's proceedings, that statement will probably feel like it's a long way back in the rearview mirror. Well, certainly everybody who made comments on Schiff said that he had his finest hour, to use a phrase, um, and during his peroration. Some people said he went on too long, but uh, yeah. people think yeah. in general sort of like the intensity. But um, I agree with you. I mean, if you're going to win this thing at all on a breach of a public trust doctrine, you have to get this down to a one-sentence proposition and never deviate from that. And what you say is that the president was prepared to barter away foreign policy in order to get a short-term political advantage by asking a foreign sovereign to denounce the uh, rival that he had for the United States president, period, full stop. And you don't want to go into the question of what happened with Obama, what happens with lethal weapons, what happens with Russia and so forth. Uh, You want to try to do this as a narrowest form of a breach of trust case and so that you can make it, if not a high crime and misdemeanor, close enough and analogous to uh, so that you could carry it. And I think every time the uh, Democrats let their resentments take over and make this a more broad-based attack, uh, what they're doing is they're losing the force and they're making it a referendum on the president. And, you know, I would say, relative to expectations back in 2017, if you would ask me, has he done better or worse than I hope to fear, I would say he's certainly done much better, even if you take the Ukraine thing into account. And I don't see why it is that the Democrats are going to help themselves by emphasizing things on which the president could probably say a great deal on his own behalf. Richard, you keep referring to this this public trust theory of the impeachment case, and that's how I see it, too. Now, we saw a very powerful case from Alan Dershowitz that actually that's no case for impeachment at all. Uh, as he testified last night, again, we're recording this on January 28th, as he testified, or not testified, but as he argued in the Senate last night, uh, his view, the president's view, is that impeachment uh, requires Treasury, uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, and that means only crimes, and that there can be no impeachment under our Constitution for things like abuse of power, abuse of the public trust, 
and, and so on. And, and I'd add to that uh, a powerful op-ed by our friend Josh Blackman, a law professor down in Texas, who wrote in the New York Times a few days ago that President Trump can't be impeached for um, leveraging U.S. diplomatic resources for political gain, because, of course, all presidents do everything for political gain. So there's no real difference in that respect between what President Trump did with respect to Ukraine, assuming the allegations are true, uh, and with respect to, say, what Lincoln did during the course of the Civil War. Uh, Richard, what do you make of, first of all, Alan Dershowitz's argument that high crimes and misdemeanors means just crimes and not the abuse of power? Um, this is actually a very hard question because it gives you a reason to consider two alternative views of how you take a constitutional con uh, provision. The first one is strictly textual, and you ignore things like the collateral information that comes out of the Federalist Papers, including Hamilton's remarks on this subject. And if you just do the textual stuff, the word that you put in italics for these purposes, the word other. And so it has to be bribery, treason, or other stress, stress, high crime or misdemeanor. And if that's the particular case, then anything which does not fall into these particular categories can't be done. And you say this is now a criminal trial. And the general views with respect to criminal trials is that you have to get yourself closely within the statute, because given the severity of the um, uh, sanction that's going to be involved, you don't want to go up making extraterritorial or extra-textual uh, criminal law. And there's a lot of stuff about that elsewhere in the criminal code. I remember when I was a law student many, many years ago, there was an English case called DPP v. Smith, in which the whole question was, if you have a codified structure, can you start to create new common law crimes in the interstices? And I think there's a lot to say for the proposition that, no, you're not allowed to do so, uh, because it simply doesn't give you full and fair notice of what's going on. So uh, there is certainly a very respectable argument on that side. There's also an argument on the other side, uh, which is, I'm not an expert on this, but I I do believe that there's text, particularly from Hamilton and so forth, um, which says that what you're talking about here is not just simply these narrow things, but anything which calls into question the confidence and the probity and the general desirability of what the government turns out to be. And so if you take the extra textual stuff, uh, then the position that you're going to say is other high crimes or misdemeanors come or actions sufficiently closely analogous to such that they should be treated that way, even though they're not mentioned in the text. We do many things by way of implication and extension in that particular fashion. And if you have the Hamilton text there, it certainly becomes legitimate, but not dispositive to argue for it. The reason why this then becomes hard is usually when you get a, con you know, a conflict between original interpretation and original text, there's a kind of a history, a custom, and a series of practices that start to grow up, which will help you kind of resolve this question. But here, we only have three cases before this, none of which were in this sort of gray area. Uh, so what happens is you can say that the problem has been resolved uh, by usage and common practices, which in accordance with many people, of course, is an extremely important way that you try to fill in the interstices of the Constitution. And so I don't think there's a knockdown argument on either side. Uh, my own view about this, again, is I think this is such a sufficiently grave and dislocating situation uh, that I would take the same statements that were made by people like Nancy Pelosi and uh, Jerry Nadler back in 1998, 
which is when in doubt on an impeachment question, which involves a huge political convulsion, uh, you really want to make sure that it's pretty powerful, clear, and persuasive, uh, so that you don't want to be in the interstices and in the perumbras of these various kinds of provisions. You'd rather be within the text. But as we say, this is contestable, and as you know as well as I do, virtually everybody who had one thing to say about this in 1998, when it's a Democrat being impeached, has switched sides uh, in the later time. So there's a, a more than a fair whiff of opportunism there. I will always say, though, I mean, Josh Blackman is a friend of mine. I don't know of anybody actually in the entire American legal system who is a more daunting, more precise textualist with respect to all the structural issues. He's done an amazing job dealing with the emoluments problem and so forth. So I tend to take his views fairly seriously. Your textual analysis at the beginning of that, focusing on the word other, uh, that's a great example, and I think it shows some of the challenges of the analysis here, right? The phrase treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. It, the, the way you interpret that last phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, and how tightly you relate it to the things that come before the word other really points you in one direction or the other. When you offer that example, I jotted down on a notepad, you know, another sort of a, another example. Say I, I tell my, say my daughter gets her driver's license and I tell her, uh, you know, be sure not to do any speeding, tailgating, or other reckless actions, hmm. right? The first two are illegal. And so the question is, does she interpret that as meaning, well, just don't break any traffic laws? Or when I say no speeding, tailgating, or other reckless actions, does it just happen that the first two are criminal, but the more important fact is they're just reckless, and I want her to avoid reckless things altogether? This phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, is a real challenge, even in and of itself, because it could be either a couple of terms of art, high crimes, misdemeanors, or the phrase itself could be a term of art, high crimes and misdemeanors. The latter is how I how I think it's best understood, and the scholars who have written on this I find persuasive. The, uh, the, 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 the term high crimes and misdemeanors was adopted from prior English usage. Even under English usage, it was not very well defined. Uh, but the framers adopted it as sort of a placeholder to represent English practice, especially with, as they said in Philadelphia in 1787, the example of Warren Hastings, the impeached um, governor of the East Indies Company, um, as, as reaching something more than just crimes. When Dershowitz gave his, his statement last night, uh, he gave a lot of great I think he, he had some really powerful arguments grappling with some of the things that, say, Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 65. And l listen, I adore Alan Dershowitz. He was one of my favorite couple of law professors at Harvard. He's a phenomenal lawyer and advocate. But watching his testimony, his, his statement last night, I felt more and more, you know, to, to, to refer back to one of his most famous clients, I felt like he was racing past the uh, racing around the 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 contrary arguments and evidence like a white Ford Bronco on an empty 405. Some of the most important arguments out there he didn't grapple with. For example, he quotes aspects of Federalist 65, Alexander Hamilton. But if I if I recall correctly, he never grappled with the key the key phrase as I see it, where Hamilton explaining why impeachment wasn't left to the Supreme Court. He says it's not left to the Supreme Court because impeachment is not a precisely legal or legalistic. Um, process. And the exact quote is, um, mm -hmm. the necessity of a numerous court for the trial of impeachments, namely a big Senate rather than nine judges, is equally dictated by the nature of the proceeding. This can never be tied down by such strict rules, either in the delineation of the offense by the prosecutors 
or in the construction of it by the judges. Hamilton was saying impeachment is the substance, the law and facts of impeachment are never going to be bound down with precision in the way that an actual trial is. That's why you leave it to the Senate, not a court. And the other example that sort of drove me a little crazy watching him was he quoted Blackstone's definition of misdemeanors um, and to the point that that uh, Blackstone's famous commentaries on the law of England said that misdemeanors are, in effect, synonymous with the word crimes. And that's true. But if you look up in the same text, Blackstone's definition of high misdemeanors, Blackstone says very bluntly, high misdemeanors includes everything from maladministration to other forms of abuse of public trust, the sorts of things that are dealt with in impeachment. And whether Dershowitz either didn't know about that part of Blackstone or just chose to ignore it, his argument was very powerful if you didn't know all the things that he was leaving out. And so it, I, I found it very frustrating. Um, look, it's always frustrating. But again, it's even, I think, more complicated than that. First, there's the simple logical question of distribution. High crimes and any old low misdemeanors are high crimes and only high misdemeanors. One of the things about it is the text seems to say that high modifies only crimes and not misdemeanors, at which point it's a kind of a silly proposition because a high crime is something deadly serious and a misdemeanor, if it's not high, is going to be something relatively minor. And so I tend to try to read this term against its natural meaning and have the high cover both terms, which is the kind of thing that you were suggesting. Then when it turns to the question about, well, you know, we put this in here because it's a very different kind of a case, to put it mildly, it is a very different kind of case, even if you keep to a narrow definition of what is or is not a crime under these kinds of circumstances. you got 100 senators. Obviously, it's a political body. At the time they did this, it wasn't 100 senators. It would have been 26 or 28 or 40 or some kind mm-hmm. of number like that, sort of a different proceeding. And so what one could quite say is they have the chief judge beside all these guys doing it. It's not supposed to be a standard criminal trial, but that doesn't mean you could change the nature of the offenses. It may be you change the way in which you question witnesses. It may be the way, the distribution of control. You've got this very weird situation where the senators are judges on the one hand and, and maybe inquisitors on the other. Um, uh, the Democrats always implore the Republicans to remember that they have high fiduciary duties. Uh, nobody can say that Charles Schumer in this particular case is basically saying, well, I'm going to wait till all the evidence comes in to see which way I think it really goes before I make my vote. So you get all sorts of changes by virtue of the structure, even if you don't change the substance. And so you could then make the following argument. If you're going to have to necessarily have all of these political complications come up in the dynamics of one of these hearings, and the witness question, I think, will show that, do you really want to have a further jumble by having a much broader definition of what's going on? Uh, Because it could well be, in effect, that you could read Hamilton, because he's not the B end of the law, is that there are many high crimes and misdemeanors that involve breach of trust. And those kinds of things are the ones that you really want to worry about. So then the question is, how would you analogize these various cases to bribery? And does this actually fall into that particular situation? So I regard this as actually an extremely difficult question to deal with. Historically, we've always had the crime in there to avoid this. But I think, in effect, that we're going to get caught in the briar patch on this one, and somebody's going to end up with a lot of brambles um, embedded in his or her skin. 
Now, now the 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 opposite extreme of this is also a, a terrible thing. It, we we can't say that impeachment, <laughs> high crimes and misdemeanors, just means whatever the senators say. I think that's that was a line that was bandied about. Um, I can't remember which um, House Democrat said that, but I think it's actually originally Gerald Ford's line from the 1970s that impeachment means whatever the House and Senate decides it means. And that's not true either. Uh, the term high crimes and misdemeanors, it's in the Constitution. It's law. It has to have some sort of meaning. And so we're, we're trapped with this, this, this challenge of deciding, does it have an extremely precise meaning, which I think is wrong? Does it have an, a completely malleable and open-ended meaning, which I think also is wrong? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what does it mean somewhere in the middle? And the challenge is for senators and then ultimately the American public to find a way to give meaning to this uh, vague phrase uh, without just, I'd say, in the in the best sense of politics, not the lowest sense of politics. And speaking of politics, just back to our friend Josh Blackman, who I agree. Any anytime I find myself disagreeing with Josh, again, I need to question my life choices. But this is another one where I, I, I with all due respect to my friend, I just think he's wrong to equate all uh, politically motivated action by presidents. One of the examples he gives is uh, Lincoln during the Civil War allowed the troops from Indiana to go home to vote, even though it might temporarily undermine the war effort on the battlefield. But Lincoln needed the votes back in Indiana. Um, so he did that. And 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 Josh says in his New York Times op-ed, presidents always have politics in the back of their mind. Uh, they should. They, we want our presidents to, to pursue what they think is the public's desire. Um, but first of all, I think it's a mistake to suggest that what President Trump did with with Ukraine had politics in the back of his mind rather than the front of his mind. Second, I think there's a big difference between what, say, Lincoln did and what President Trump's alleged to have done. And perhaps the best evidence of that difference is the fact that President Lincoln did what he did openly and President Trump did what he did under secret. Uh, comparing the Lincoln uh, and, and the Trump examples reminds me a bit of a famous line from William F. Buckley Jr. I think he said it on the Johnny Carson show. He was complaining or, or joking about people who equate what the CIA and the KGB do, saying, well, they're all spy. And Buckley said, no, we need to be able to draw distinctions. Um, the, the KGB is like the person who pushes a little old lady in front of a bus. The CIA is like the person who pushes a little old lady out of the way of a bus. And you can't just say, well, all these things are the same because they're pushing little old ladies around. We need to be able to draw distinctions based on the substance of what they did. And so I don't think it's fair to say, well, all things are political. So the fact that there's a political motivation means it's not impeachable. No, I think we need to ask what they actually did. And here's, again, where I think the the, the abuse of power and public trust aspects of impeachment, which Dershowitz rejects, but I don't, really do call upon the senators to make difficult judgment calls about the substance of what the president was alleged to have done. Well, certainly I do not like the parallel between Lincoln and Trump. I mean, not only is it overt, but also in this particular case, there are perfectly valid democratic reasons why one would want to do this. And uh, to put it slightly general, he let the soldiers go back. He did not let only soldiers for Lincoln go back and keep everybody else on the front lines. Uh, This is also similar to, it was uh, Lincoln beyond his power when he suspended the writ of habeas corpus with respect to what was going in on Maryland. And yes, I mean, it's very ambiguous, by the way, whether or not the president has the power to suspend the writ when the Congress is not in session and so forth. It was later confirmed by Congress. But I would never have thought to that to be anything close to an impeachable offense, because it's, first of all, not at all clear who does have the power to suspend. The suspension clause is located in Article 1. But on the other hand, it's what I like to call the constitutional passive. It says uh, the writ 
of habeas corpus may be suspended, uh, but it doesn't tell you who's supposed to be doing the suspending. And I would have thought that given the necessity of the circumstances and the obvious um, a national survival at issues involved, uh, Lincoln is rightly acquitted of being abusive with respect to the presidency. And I think it takes a lot more than you could show to do that. I think, though, the interesting thing, though, Adam, the one point I disagree with you, particularly with respect to the Zelensky situation, one of the really odd things about this is there doesn't seem to be any allegation of any secret pressure that's going on. Uh, if you're talking about the July 25th conversation, uh, you have probably 20 people on both sides watching that thing. You get the transcript released. Uh, you don't see anything. Uh, just to anticipate for a second, Bolton doesn't talk about July. He talks about August. And, you know, God knows what happened in these circumstances. But at least I think it's a point in favor of the president uh, that if you're trying to read that conversation um, on July 25th, to read it in a way which is deliberately hostile to him um, under circumstances where it's made in a quasi-public setting and where the transcript, even if it has some deviations, is not done by him, I think that's probably impermissible under these circumstances. So again, on the evidentiary stuff on this, I do think that you want to get closer uh, to the criminal standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, even though I take it there's absolutely nothing whatsoever in the Constitution when it says the candidate shall have the sole power to try impeachment, which tells you, A, what the standard of proof is, who goes first, and whether or not beyond a reasonable doubt still survives. In my own mind, I do think that that is the proper thing to do because of what I regard as the massive political and social dislocations of changing an administration in the middle of the term under circumstances where every suspicion is going to be high, and all of our foreign policy and domestic relationships will be in a state of dangerous uh, limbo during the transition. You've got one day to do this transition between administrations, between November and January, uh, rather different circumstances. Now, we don't need to, uh, we probably don't need to rehearse all of our disagreements about how to understand the president's conversations with Zelensky. I think you and I just read them fundamentally differently. But one person who has a much closer view of that whole situation was former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who finds himself in the news in the last few days with the leak of, of I, not the, the manuscript that he submitted for publication, but leaks of alleged um, details from that from from that manuscript, where it's reported that John Bolton uh, had a, a very critical view of what President Trump was trying to accomplish and why he was trying to accomplish it with respect to Ukraine. What do you think of the sudden emergence of these allegations involving Bolton? And do you think he should be called as a witness? Boy, oh boy, why do you ask me the hard questions? But um, <laughs> I mean, look, this is an extremely difficult question. First of all, let me just start about the, the procedures in the release. One of the things that has bothered me most about this entire proceeding is that the South took all sorts of shortcuts um, in the preliminary stages to rush this thing through, and the hopes that somehow or other it could patch up the witness problems after it had sent its uh, accounts for impeachment over to the Senate rather than before. Before. And this is part of the price that you pay, trying to figure out how you take this blockbuster into account. I think it's even worse that this comes out of a leak from the New York Times, a certainly non-neutral source with respect to this thing, where we, in effect, are tantalizing 
the Wall Street Journal made a suggestion, which I think is probably not going to carry the day, nor should it, which says, well, let him just clarify so you don't have to call him as a witness. He could just issue a statement. But he issues a statement. Somebody's going to want to question it. Somebody's going to demand cross-examination. Uh, you're going to be in limbo. This is a case if you're in for a dime, you're in for a dollar. That is, you have to do the whole thing. Now, what do I think about the substance of the allegations? Well, I'm, I'm really not sure. But let me start with the first point. This is in August, and that was very close to the time when the thing was absolutely approved. Uh, we don't know whether he said it just as an offside to um, Bolton. We don't know whether he said it one time or 10. We don't know whether anybody else was there. We don't know whether or not he decided to act on this particular impulse. Um, Bolton is an advisor. He's not a line officer. Uh, so it could have been one of Trump's, you know, usually stupid, impulsive kinds of statements. But if you then start looking at it in context, within a very short period of time, it uh, turns out that Trump does get known pressure from several Republican senators, including, I think, Rob Portman, uh, to, for heaven's sake, release this thing, and he releases it within time. Uh, so uh, it could well be that this is an aside, or it could be that it's some kind of really deep sort of plot. My inclination under these circumstances is not to give it decisive weight, uh, because I don't see how it ever worked itself into the stream of public business. I would think much more differently about this if it were an order, if that order had started to be carried out. It's also, I think, perfectly consistent with this statement uh, that we have Zelensky's statements and the other Ukrainian statements that they never felt pressure. And indeed, the only allegation of pressure that we have really comes from the whistleblower's report who led with that based on double hearsay. The Democrats are not going to introduce it into evidence. I do think, by the way, it is perfectly permissible to take a definition, a deposition of, of the whistleblower have to give him protections against sanctions and all the rest of that stuff uh, to find out what his sources are so you can figure out how this thing started to get going there. And so I do think that the Republican strategy, which would be right, is you can get yourself Bolton. I think it's going to be very hard to stop it, but we want to get some other stuff to put it into context. And I think once you start doing that, it's going to be a much longer trial. And I'm not so sure who's going to win out of these kinds of things. But my view about it is they have opened Pandora's box. I think there will be one or two Republican senators for sure who are going to go over on this thing. Susan Collins and Romney are the two obvious ones. I don't know who else is out there, but I'm not a local guy. You may get three or four, at which point uh, it's a much more high stakes game. If Trump survives, I think it will actually help him in the reelection. If he doesn't survive, I think there'll be help to pay politically if he's forced out of office uh, with less than a year to go in his term of service. I agree with you. It's too soon to tell what exactly to make of John Bolton's alleged allegations, um, two, two levels of, of allegation there, I suppose. Um, what what Bolton allegedly said and whether those allegations are, are actually true. I don't know that he necessarily needs to be called as a witness. Like you said, a lot of this could be could be clarified in writing or by an outside statement by John Bolton. There's no reason why he has to be um, actually in the Senate trial. But, of course, I wouldn't be averse to that either. I think he is one of the handful of witnesses whose testimony, whether formal in the Senate in a deposition or otherwise, or just informal statements outside of the process that inform the process and the, the senators could take notice of, I really think we need to know more. The question then is, what's the process for all of this? And that is uh, what the senators will be grappling with next, as you suggested, not just whether to have witnesses, but also what process to have witnesses at all. And we've seen Democrats with lists of, of witnesses they'd like to see, in particular Bolton um, and, and um, uh, Mulvaney and a few others close to the president. 
Uh, Republicans then say, well, if you call them as witnesses, we're going to call Hunter Biden and other people. And very quickly, I think it becomes clear that this is not really a debate about what the witnesses can add in terms of facts. It's a debate over how can we use the witness process to blow things up politically. I mean, my suggestion to the senators would be uh, that that rather than coming up with a process where they're immediately calling witnesses, they ought to put the burden on the parties, the House managers and the White House lawyers, to identify which witnesses are actually useful or relevant to dis- to specific disputed issues of facts. That's why you have witnesses. You have witnesses because they're disputed issues of facts. I think the House managers and the Republicans are both trying to have it kind of both ways. They both have in mind who they'd like to call as witnesses, but neither side really wants to concede that witnesses are actually needed because neither side wants to concede that the facts could plausibly support the other side. So I would put the burden on both sets of lawyers. Um, That's how I hope the senators would structure things. Rather than the senators coming up with lists of witnesses, at least as a first step, pass a resolution calling upon the House managers and the White House, the president's lawyers, to specify which witnesses would actually be relevant to material issues of disputed fact and to go from there. I don't think, I think that there needs to be parity, but I don't think it's parity in the sense of one for one. One witness for the Republicans means one witness for the Democrats. No, what we want are relevant witnesses. The best kind of parity, the right kind of parity, is one that after you identify material issues of fact, give both sides an equal opportunity to contest that issue of fact and to go from there. Am I wrong? You know, God knows. Um, let me give the the first approximation. <laughs> sorry if I went uh, a little bit. Sorry if I went no, a little no, long. No, no, no. I don't. I I don't think you're wrong. I just don't think it's ineluctable that you're right. So let me tell you a slightly different way that I have on this. You know, suppose you were to put a witness on the stand in all public, and they ask a question, and then the other side says, "Objection! Irrelevant, Your Honor." And then who is going to decide on the relevance question? Is it the Supreme Court Chief Justice, Justice Roberts? Is it going to be a vote by the senators? Is it going to be a parliamentary into doing that? I think trying to do this in a first cut in a public forum where you're going to get all of these things is going to be absolutely devastating. In any serious criminal trial, what you try to do is to investigate before you put people on the stand. And so what I would certainly like to do is to see this first done privately through interrogatories, who do you want to see? What questions do you want to ask? And then I would rather see written kinds of answers to some of these things. And then and only then after you think there's something going on, do you want to make it public? To give you a comparison, I believe during the Kavanaugh hearing, there were lots of things that you wanted to hear. And I don't even remember who it was, but it may have been Miss um, uh, Blasey Ford. Uh, what you did is you sort of ran something in private and you had yourself an estimation and then you went back into public with what went on. I think you're going to have to do something like this. I believe, in effect, that if you really try to do this as a witness, uh, the statement that you just made about, well, this is not really a conventional case, means that since you don't have a judge and you don't have a jury, all of the witness control devices that you'd use in an ordinary trial are going to break down. You're going to have to go into a process that nobody understands in a public way. And so I really think that you want to narrow it down. I believe you correctly, because I'm not the presidential historian. There was some testimony taken in the Clinton stuff, but it was all behind closed doors. Is that correct or is that wrong, Adam? Uh, that's correct. but at the, And also, of course, the Clinton impeachment followed the entire 
entire star investigation, which built a much more robust factual record uh, in, before the House proceedings than in this impeachment. Yeah, and that, that of course, is the problem. I mean, right. I, I think the Republicans have a genuine, uh, a, you know, objection to the, the slapdash way in which all of this thing was done. Yeah, I mean, I by trying to do it on the one side, you put us in this impossible position. There was, I think, a statement by the Republicans, which, as I think about it, has more power. There was no way that you could subpoena any witness if you did not call an impeachment inquiry. So what you could do is you could send a letter. Well, letters in, without sanctions, not under punishment, subpoena, are very different things. And then to turn around and say, since you didn't answer my letter, which is not coercive, you're now obstructing Congress. You're obstructing Congress, which doesn't even follow the correct procedures under these circumstances. So I actually have another suggestion, which is pull this thing out, go back and start over again. That is, let the House decide to get a full record. If they want to go after Bolton, let them go after it. Uh, there is, I think, probably a sound, but not a certainly sound claim that executive privilege survives in an impeachment trial like it does everywhere else. Uh, that's not been settled, I believe, but it would be. So I'm going to say slightly more audacious statement is you guys have botched this thing up so badly in the way in which you rushed it. You're trying to basically now get an advantage of having since you really failed the first time and behaved very badly, now we have the right to behave badly and do it a second time on the witness. No. What you do is you withdraw the prosecution, withdraw the counts, and start over again, at which point this is effectively dead, I suspect. But there is a part of me which says you can't do this. I recall hearing Michael McFall saying, well, if you're a scientist and you get new information, you always take it into account. You should do that here. Scientists are not engaged in strategic behavior. Scientists are not engaged in the kind of activity where what you try to do is to make life miserable for your opponent by taking shortcuts under the particular rules. And the entire system of preclusion, what you can do with the trial, what you can do on appeal, what issues have to be raised in order to be preserved, is put into a legal system and not into a scientific inquiry because of the massive irregularities that can take place. I see that as a very important kind of issue in this particular situation. And so rather than try to invent some crazy procedure, my suggestion would be that they regroup and start over. Am I being unreasonable, Adam? Well, I, I agree totally that so Ooh, many of the, I love it. <laughs> so many of the problems it, that we're it. so many of the problems that we're seeing right now are just the result of the House trying to do this on the on the quick and easy, uh, under a totally arbitrary political deadline of getting it done before Christmas. And we're now seeing the results of that. And I think it's a shame I criticized it at the time. Um, with respect to to how the House, sorry, how the Senate should process new information. Uh, I agree totally that you can't just say, well, whenever there's new factual information, the Senate needs to consider it. No, that turns this then into a fishing expedition and a fishing expedition when both the fishermen and the fish are all trying to be strategic about what they reveal and when. There has to be some sort of structure to it. Now, the opposite, another danger I see in all of this, and we see it in a recent New York Times op-ed um, authored by uh, Neil Kotyal and Joshua Geltzer and Mickey Edwards, they argue that actually the chief justice should just assert control over things like the witness question, uh, because under the Senate's rules, um, the presiding officer has the power to make all orders, mandates, writs, and precepts, and so on, um, which, which means in this case, the chief justice, the chief justice's presiding officer could subpoena witnesses and so on. And they say this doesn't involve a Senate vote. But of course, what these lawyers are, are, are forgetting is that everything 
in the Senate is subject to a vote. And even if the rule they're citing isn't on its face um, inviting a Senate vote, the Senate can always vote to change the rule. That's the nature of the Senate. The challenge in all of this is for people to understand that the Senate is not supposed to be either a political free fire zone or a Perry Mason style trial. It's somewhere in between. This is what I've been writing about ever since about well, I suppose since the House finished its 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 proceedings in December, that there's just this complete refusal by so many partisans around this issue to really think seriously about what the Senate's job here is procedurally, in terms of statesmanship, in terms of substance, and and so on, that this demands something very special of the Senate, and the Senate is the one part of government that the framers trusted to undertake this kind of duty. It's not a court. It's not the House of Representatives. It's supposed to stand impartially between both the House and the president institutionally, taking seriously both the House's oversight power and the president's executive privilege and so on. There's no shortage of problems surrounding the debates um, in impeachment. But one of the, the maybe the two worst are the all or nothing style legalistic arguments advanced by both sides and also the insistence by people to try to convert, to try to 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 anchor everything in analogies that just don't really fit. Sorry, now I'm off my soapbox. Yeah, I think um, we're coming to the end on a we are, note do any, of, Well, do you, have any, do you have any predictions about how this ends, Richard, in terms of either whether witnesses will be called or whether the Senate votes to remove the president? Well, the more I talk about it, the less I know. And the more I listen to you, even less I know. I, well, my ouch, guess is ouch, I, I still... I still think that there's a very long way to get to uh, to remove the president. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that the Bolton testimony in and of itself is strong enough unless you could link it to some act taken by the president with respect to implementation of this um, through threats or otherwise. The time frame is extremely short. This is August, and that's when the thing was approved. So I think it's going to end up in an acquittal. I don't think it's going to be uh, devastating. Um, the Bolton thing. Uh, my own view on the short term is that one wants to sort of kind of uh, get this as much as you can out of the public eye, at least for the preliminary stuff. There are two ways of doing it. One is to try to have in-camera hearings at the Senate level with various witnesses or even interrogatories. This is a free fire zone. Nobody's ever done it, so we don't know how it's going to happen. My own preference, having thought aloud about this, is I think that it's so difficult to try and cure this thing at this particular stage that the uh, House should withdraw its charges and see if it could refile. And I don't believe that they can do that. So here's the situation. Hopeless within the Senate, withdrawal and de facto rejection of the particular case. Uh, these are not appetizing um, kinds of alternatives. And precisely because the political irregularities are so great on this thing and are largely attributable to what the Democrats and the New York Times have done by leaking, I think that the president is going to survive this because the political motivations on the other side will loom larger uh, given the way this thing has unfolded. The next time we chat, maybe this will all be wrapped up and it'll be a, a distant memory. We can talk about other things. The Supreme Court's about to hear a major case involving agency independence. You have a new book out on the administrative state. There are other things to discuss. And so maybe we'll be back to those, or maybe we'll be back talking about impeachment still in a few weeks. But either way, Richard, it's always such a pleasure to chat with you about these things, and we thank our listeners for joining us. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, 
And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.